Hi, my name is Abby Veach, and I'm a college senior at American University in Washington, D.C. This podcast is the final product of my environmental science capstone research project. I'm going to be chatting with some experts about my findings on the conservation movement, past, present, and future, and the psychology of connecting people to place. I grew up on Long Island in New York, in a community with an extremely rich environmental history, and one that is passionate about the outdoors and the land that we reside on. This history of environmentalism shaped my trajectory as an environmentalist, and taught me about the importance of having a relationship with nature. The Environmental Defense Fund was founded on a nature preserve, a five-minute walk away from my high school. I grew up playing in the woods, swimming in the river, and climbing in trees, right where the folks who discovered the devastating effects of DDT birded and hiked. Because of this upbringing, I have a deep and meaningful connection to the outdoors that I absolutely treasure. However, my community is torn by environmental justice issues, and one that is already seeing the devastating effects of climate change. Each year, our beaches erode further and storms become more frequent. Invasive species have wreaked havoc on our woods, and every year, we lose more green space. My community is one of the most segregated areas of Long Island, literally divided by train tracks. Minority communities live closer to environmental stressors, while wealthy and predominantly white neighborhoods have more access to green space and the water. I also live in a community that often votes against environmental protection, and despite the strong environmentalist community, there is not much action being taken to address environmental injustices. And despite my town being within 20 minutes of two indigenous reservations, the Shinnecock Nation and Puspatuck Reservation, both with thriving communities with deep histories to conservation work, it was not until college and my own research that I learned more about the indigenous communities on Long Island and their influence over the land I grew up on. After four years away from this community, my passion for outdoor equity and environmental justice has grown. And as an environmental communicator, I frequently wonder about the path forward for the conservation movement and how we'll have to change in order to best serve the environment and the people who live in and around the land we're hoping to maintain. I set out to learn about the history of the American conservation movement and how to most effectively protect land, protect people, and how to engage others in this work. Through my research, I came across the idea of nature connectedness and the body of environmental psychology looking at how we are affected by our relationship with nature and how building that relationship can cause people to engage in more pro-conservation action. Here's Professor Holly Ann Passmore, one of the leading environmental psychologists studying nature connectedness and how connecting with nature affects individual sense of well-being. Um, I'm Dr. Holly Ann Passmore, and I'm an assistant professor at Concordia University of Edmonton, where I also am the director of the Nature, Meaning, and Life Lab. And I have been interested, I've been doing research in this field for, I have to think about that, <laughs> probably 10, 12 years, quite a while now. And I got interested in it. Um, I guess partly because spending time in nature, I've always felt very connected to nature and certainly spent a lot of time out at our cabin as a kid. My grandparents and parents had land out, so I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, and getting pretty close towards Jasper, and we spent a lot of time basically hanging out in the forest um, (laughs) and hanging out in nature, and I've continued to do that throughout my life. 
this is a term we were talking about before um, and that I've, I've researched a bit, but can you talk about the idea and the concept of nature connectedness and how it affects the people you've researched? Yes, certainly. So uh, there's two aspects when people talk about how nature impacts people's sense of well-being. One aspect is time spent in nature. And that's pretty self-explanatory, right? That's how much time you spend in nature outside. And this, this can also be just everyday nature. It doesn't necessarily have to be backpacking wilderness kind of nature. Then there's also the aspect of a construct called nature connectedness. So this is really how emotionally and cognitively connected do you feel to the greater than human natural world? So how much is that a part of your identity? And there's a couple ways to describe that. And I actually, uh, uh, John, uh, Dr. Zelensky, who is one of the leading researchers in this field and, and a colleague of mine, He's a great way of explaining this. So it's a little bit of, I was asking you about extroversion, and I asked you, how much time do you spend around other people? And you tell me that. That gives me an, some kind of an idea. What it doesn't tell me, though, and in fact, it tells me nothing about the quality of that relate, those relationships, and it doesn't tell me anything of, do you actually feel connected or do you feel lonely um, when you're spending time with other people? That's essentially nature connectedness. So it's not about time. It's how connected do you feel to, to nature? How, how much if there's a tug at nature, is there a tug at you? And because there's certainly research, we know that uh, people who are high in nature connectedness, this contributes to their sense of well-being over and above their sense of being connected to other people. So we know from my research and other people's research that when people are more connected to nature, so higher levels of nature connectedness, they tend to feel, they tend to be more mindful, but they also tend to be, uh, have more positive emotions, fewer negative emotions. They tend to be more pro-social, so kinder to other people. And we also know that they tend to have higher levels of meaning in life, which is incredibly important to our sense of well-being. And people who are highly connected to nature, this is actually the number one, it's like a foundational factor for predicting pro-environmental behavior. So a whole pile of good things come from people feeling this connection to nature, less lonely, higher well-being, greater meaning in life, and better pro-environmental and pro-nature behavior as well. It doesn't necessarily take more time for you. This isn't about necessarily spending more time in nature. Obviously, I think it's, it's good to spend more time in nature. But you don't necessarily need to in order to get the benefits. So in one of the interventions that I have run that has great results, is people, the whole intervention is simply just notice how the nature around you makes you feel. You could write a description of it, you could take a photo of it and share it with someone, but the big point is about noticing the nature around you. This is about moments, not minutes. And that's a huge message, I think, to get across. And when we talk about nature, we are talking about the, the tree at the bus stop, the bird in the sky, the stuff you see every day. 
I also spoke with Leah Barbet, a postgraduate research student in environmental psychology who works with Professor Miles Richard, who founded the Nature Connectedness Research Group at University of Derby in the UK. Leah's research focuses on the actions that people can take to support nature conservation or pro-nature conservation behaviors. Um, yes, so my name's Leah Barbet, and I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Derby in England, um, where I study pro-nature conservation behaviors. And before I got into that, I was doing psychology, but on the side, I always used to do a lot of volunteering with environmental organizations, um, mainly through my university. But also when I was younger already, I was always out and about in nature. So that's kind of how I got into the more environmental side of psychology. Everyone can connect with the nature that's around them. And it's not about only your values or your knowledge, because we know that this knowledge-based approach doesn't work. It's not about you being able to tell 20 different bird species apart. It's about how you feel and how nature makes you feel that really helps people engage. And I think that's something that everyone can do completely regardless of their educational background or the socioeconomic background. And it's really important, I think, for people who work in conservation to address that and to address this issue when it comes to including people, that it's not just about education and the means to go on a big hike. No, not everyone has these means, but everyone can look at a tree and find beauty in that. So that's, I think, a really important point to keep in mind. What do you want to see in the future of the conservation movement to, and the environmental movement to have a more inclusive and, and robust community? I would like to just see kind of a language and communications that addresses this idea that humans connect with nature. I think a lot of conservation organizations have already started doing this, but that really kind of go and use this idea. They use this idea that it makes people happy to, you know, hug a tree as hippie as that sounds and to kind of yeah, capitalize on that because I think that's really going to be a way that makes nature conservation less of this. It takes it away from this old idea of nature conservation is something that, you know, the rich people who've got time for it do, but something that is for everyone. It's really important that to remember that we can all do something, whether that's in our own garden or if we don't have access to a garden, we can do it by being, you know, using our role as citizens, by talking to other people about nature, by using our political power. And that's something that everyone can do and where we can all work together to achieve societal change, together to protect nature. But I thought, what does this mean in communities like mine, ones that are highly connected to nature and yet seem to vote against their environmental interests? I spoke with Emily Diamond, a professor at the University of Rhode Island and an environmental communicator. She studies how identities inform and shape individuals' responses to environmental information. 
In one particular study, Professor Diamond looked at why rural communities and farming communities seem to vote against environmental interests, despite a deep connection to the land. My name is Emily Diamond. I'm an assistant professor um, at the University of Rhode Island in the Department of Communication Studies and the Department of Marine Affairs. My research focuses mostly on environmental communication and using the idea that identities um, can interact with strategic communication to more effectively uh, influence how people think about and feel towards the environment and environmental policies. Um, in terms of my background, I, I grew up all over the place, um, got a good um, spread from, from New York uh, into Seattle. I spent a lot of my childhood in Seattle and then Baltimore um, and Atlanta, Georgia. And so I really got a good sense of how people all across America think about various different issues um, and particularly on issues of the environment. It, really motivated me to start thinking about ways we can connect more broadly um, on the issue of the environment and make it less of a uh, partisan issue and create some more some bipartisan, bipartisan consensus around in, um, environmental and conservation issues. So I focus on that mostly uh, in my graduate school work and now um, in most of, in my research in general, I look at how we can better bridge some of the divides that have emerged on environmental issues in the United States. People that live in rural areas have a very strong identification with not only the, the land and the place that they're from, but rural areas in general. So what we identify is this, this place attachment, this, this rural identity that, um, that is emerging and actually gathering strength um, more recently this idea not only that um, people are very attached, people in rural areas are, are very attached to their land and, and the land that they grew up on and that they work on, but that there's this growing divide between people that live in rural areas and people that live in urban areas. And they identify broadly with people that live in rural areas and feel like people that live in urban areas are, um, you know, outsiders, um, the out group, as we, as we uh, you know, using the terminology of, of uh, psychology and, and identity theory. Um, so, you know, we do find a lot of evidence in our conversations and our polls that people that live in rural areas, people that work the land, farmers, foresters, ranchers, they care a lot about the quality of their local environment, right? They know that if they don't take care of the soil in their land or keep clean water, that they're not going to be able to pass their farm down to future generations. Um, so there's this really strong sense of protecting the environment for the sake of stewardship of natural resources and, and their ability to continue to, um, you know, farm on, on that land for generations to come. Um, so uh, from that perspective, you would think that they would be very supportive of different types of policies to uh, protect clean air, clean water, maintain soil, health, uh, you know, even things like climate change because so many of these farmers are, are going to be impacted by severe droughts, severe rains, um, all of the different types of impacts of climate change. But what we really heard is this recognition that, that 
people in rural places understand and want to protect the environment, but they feel strongly that they've been doing this for a really long time. No one knows their land better than they do. And what they really don't want is people who they see as outsiders, you know, people from Washington, D.C. or other types of regulators coming in and telling them what to do with their land. Um, so one of the really strong values that underpin this rural identity is a, a sense of independence and, uh, you know, individual responsibility. And they really feel like regulations of all shapes and sizes are have a tendency to impinge upon their individual freedoms and their ability to make decisions about what is most appropriate for their land, for the health of their land, um, which creates a challenge because most of the ways that we need to regulate environmental issues or that we need to address environmental issues come in the form of regulations, at least at least traditionally. Um, so, But one of the potential ways that we could overcome this issue is if we had more rural engagement in policymaking, if people in rural America felt like their voices were being heard in the policymaking and regulatory process, then they would feel less threatened that, uh, you know, their, their independence and, and uh, their ability to make decisions about their own land is being threatened because they were part of the decision-making process. There's another aspect or a core aspect of my work that I focus on both in the work with rural communities, but more broadly is the important role that identities play in determining our, our attitudes and behaviors around environmental issues. So you mentioned that you were um, going to be talking about the psychological drivers of environmental attitudes and, and um, you know, the conservation behaviors. And I think that, um, well, mo most of my work focuses on how one of the most important drivers of attitudes and behaviors are our identities, are the people that we identify with and the, um, the roles and communities that we identify with. So I would just say that, um, you know, for, for the environmental movement, the environmental movement has established an identity in and of itself, um, but I think that it's not necessarily a broadly shared identity. Um, and so the more that you can link environmentally friendly attitudes and behaviors to other types of identities, um, the more powerful and broadly relevant the, um, the movement will become. So um, this can be rural identities. I've done some work that looks at um, parental identities and climate change attitudes. Um, really any, any way that people, um, people identify. So I've, I've also done some work on, on um, hunters and sportsmen identities and how those can be leveraged to increase environmental concern and, and support for environmental policies. So um, that is, that's the only other thing I would say about my research and things that I've looked at um, that I think are potentially understudied or not talked about quite as much as, um, as, as maybe they should be. I spoke with Alicia Orloff a graduate researcher currently obtaining her master's from Yale University about community-centered conservation in practice. She is currently conducting conservation research on wetlands in Hawaii. She works directly with indigenous communities and uses holistic and indigenous management practices in her work.
She utilizes interdisciplinary approaches to water resource management that engage and acknowledge communities most directly impacted. I just graduated my undergrad um, last year, actually, at the University of Washington. Um, and when I was in my getting my degree, um, I focused in uh, beaver conservation and restoration of how different practitioners are utilizing uh, different methods for um, restoring natural lands, um, especially because there were a lot of areas in Washington where they were taking down dams and, you know, it was, um, it's kind of a novel tool that individuals are interested in. Um, so I worked on that project with the Tulalip tribes, kind of looking at water quality in these dam complexes. Um, and I continued kind of this freshwater ecology scope in my first year at Yale University um, getting my master's degree. I kind of shifted focus into more of a wetland wetland focus. And so now I'm looking at water bird habitat and heterogeneity across the landscape. We're specifically looking to um, indigenous people who are managing these wetlands and have traditional practices for um, managing wetlands um, and kind of focuses on how habitat is being maintained for uh, endangered and, and endemic species uh, like the Hawaiian stilt and the Hawaiian gallinal. I don't know if it's just because I was uh, raised in the Pacific Northwest and that was something that um, is more prevalent um, in incorporating and engaging um, indigenous ways of knowing into um, and with our ways of knowing. Um, but in terms of conservation, I think that it's, it's, it definitely is hard to find individuals in conservation that are accepting and acknowledging of those um, historical management approaches. Definitely, I think it's about listening to different voices, right? Um, whether it's indigenous people, whether it's, um, you know, farmers, ranchers, fishermen, like there are people that are interacting with these landscapes um, on, a, on a constant basis. And I think in terms of conservation and research, it's really important to engage with those voices and to kind of come to terms with what what different individuals see um, through their own eyes, right? Um, I think, that, and also like engaging those voices within the conservation work and help letting that kind of guide what is being done and how conservation is moving forward. A lot of the times, individuals, scientists, whatnot, um, they kind of already have an idea of what they want to see and what they think is important, but um, 
really it's the individuals that, you know, have a stake with this future of how these environments are land are managed that um, are necessary to kind of consult when moving forward and being okay with the fact that, you know, letting, letting other people just, you know, take the reins of how management should be done and conservation should move forward. Um, A lot of the times individuals just aren't really counseled and aren't incorporated and don't have a say in what the final decisions are or, you know, outcomes are. But uh, as conservationists, as researchers and scholars, you know, we have this ability to form thread and networks through these different ideas, and we have a greater, you know, we have a greater capacity to make make that work out and as technically, you know, public servants, right? Because um, managing and conserving our resources and our environment is for, is for our communities and our society. I think it's definitely something that individuals can sacrifice a little bit more of just listening, you know, um, and something that we can get better at in conservation. I think what's also important to acknowledge is that this is conservation, you know, it's important to every single person and right. Conservation doesn't necessarily have to be, um, separated into one category, but like individuals can also be doing conservation as well. Um, and just kind of thinking of, like you were saying, those relationships to land. Um, I think that that's something that can be shared among individual people. And I think we do come at conservation with very, with a very scientific lens. Um, but I think that for the future, um, one way that might be, uh, really beneficial is just recognizing, you know, how people can share relationships with the land and how that can shape their interactions with the land. And that is, you know, that's, that's how conservation started, right? Um, indigenous peoples just like having a relationship with the land like they've been doing conservation for forever so it's really acknowledging that being able to connect with the land and to um kind of maintain our resources that's something that everyone can connect with so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing where we where we move in terms of conservation efforts and how people, how people share their ideas. So how does this all come together? What does nature connectedness and community-centered conservation work mean for the future of the movement? Next time, I'll explore the past, present, and future of the American conservation movement and speak to activists who are working to broaden who is involved with conservation work and who benefits from access to the outdoors. <laughs>